3: Welcome to my podcast Second Chance. Jeff Korsenick is Chief Investment Strategist for one of America's largest banks. This man is responsible for the investment strategy and the allocation of over $40 billion in assets. His insights into the economy, markets, manufacturing, and the workforce is invaluable. So why has he dedicated his time convincing local and multinational corporations to hire people with criminal records? His book Untapped Talent is the first of its kind to inform and inspire business leaders to broaden their hiring of this population. The book identifies the challenges and the opportunities in hiring people who have been marginalized from the workforce and it presents the business case and best practices for hiring people with criminal records. He calls it second chance hiring. Thank you so much for coming on my podcast, Second Chance. I know you use the term second chance quite a lot, but before we go into why you use the term second chance quite a lot, I want to find out a little bit about who Jeff is so my audience can, can get to grips with who I'm talking to. So let me start, Jeff, by just asking you to share with me and my audience a little bit about your background, your upbringing, what life was like for Jeff as a young man.
0: Uh, well, I had a... Um... Very fortunate upbringing, upper middle class. But my father was the one who did the heavy lifting in our family. He uh, was raised a son of uh, truly penniless immigrants and uh, was enlisted in uh, World War II at age 17, uh, got a scholarship called the GI Bill, and doubled up on classes uh, so that in four years, the four years the scholarship covered, he got degrees from Harvard undergrad and a law degree as well. So very much a self-made man who who never lost touch with his roots. And, and so that informed a lot of my values growing up, but very boring, nice upbringing.
3: You say boring, nice upbringing, but it would be very different from a lot of people that are listening to this podcast. So give me a sense of the sort of things you enjoyed, whether it was reading a book, whether it was playing soccer, whether it was baseball, whether it was fishing, whether it was sailing. What was it that that turned you on, Jeff, as a young man?
0: I'm uh, intellectually curious. So I was a reader and um, loved exploring and uh, having what adventures I could uh, could have as a young person traveling after high school uh, with a friend on a Greyhound bus around the country, uh, things like that. So so, uh, definitely uh, intellectually curious. Uh, I'm a museum person and was from an early age and loved music and uh, varied interests.
3: Was your future almost dictated For you, given your upbringing, or was there a moment in your young life where you said, "You know what? I find that particular area interesting, that subject, that that something." What was that, and when was that?
0: I think that would have been in high school when I was sixteen or seventeen, having a discussion with a classmate about oil prices at the time, because in the nineteen seventies that was a big public topic, and thinking, "Well, why doesn't the government just..." dictate the price of it. And I had never taken an economics class. And however, the person I was talking to had taken an economic class. And they were able to make arguments and use logic in ways I hadn't seen before. And that got me very interested in the study of economics. I I didn't actually start taking economics classes until university. um, But I was hooked by the subject matter and the study of trade-offs and how you deal with natural scarcity. That's the, the bread and butter of economics.
3: And that's what you did through high school and then on to university. Tell me a little bit about that.
0: I went to Princeton University. I have a, a undergraduate degree in economics. Princeton does not have uh, minors, but they have certificates of proficiency. So I actually was very active in the Near Eastern Studies program as well, but got very interested in a career on Wall Street, the investment uh, industry, and uh, started reading the Wall Street Journal and, and similar publications through college and, and uh, was actually not able to get a job on Wall Street. Took a job in London uh, with with a small startup company. Loved my experience there. And one of my uh, college roommates called me about a year in and said, hey, there's an opening in our uh, department with a company then called uh, EF Hutton & Company. It's now part of Morgan Stanley. And started what would be, up till now, about a 35-year
3: career on Wall Street. In, in well, when situation. did you come to London? When did you strut your stuff here in London?
0: Uh, that would have been 1985 and 86.
3: I like the way you look away as if you're reflecting on that time, as if it was a very long time <laughs> oh, ago. Oh, it
0: was a very long time ago and, and a very wonderful, uh, special experience uh, as well. I,
3: I'm, and have you been back since?
0: Oh, yes, uh, several times and made sure to take the, my uh, my children there. And, and uh, you know, it's, it's such a spectacular city. I've been very fortunate. I think last time I was there was uh, shortly before COVID. So December of 2019. Very enjoyable time, as always.
3: It's nice to hear you say that. So is it safe to say that, that when you at 16, 17 had this conversation with your your classmate that you were on a trajectory to do what it is you wanted to do? And did you get to do what you wanted to do in terms of your work career? Um yes,
0: it's it's rockier. Um, a number of the firms that I worked for, I think a total of five no longer exist. Um, it wasn't my fault, but uh, that's the way of the creative destruction of of capitalism. And uh, being on the wrong side of a lot of those, it was kind of a rocky um, uh, journey, but I've been uh, had tremendous stability the last uh, 10, 11 years, and uh, am doing exactly what I love doing, which is meeting with participants in the economy, whether, uh, workers or employers facing the challenge of uh, the investment markets and how they e- interact with the economy, and also getting to study some of the policy implications uh, for the uh, for the economy, and and, and just let my uh, curiosity uh, take me where it will and apply some of the tools and experiences I've had over the years.
3: I, I think you played that down because I read something, and I'm sure it was on your website that as an investment strategist. You have the responsibility for a particular bank that you work for or did work for, for something in the region of twenty, thirty billion pounds. You know, you dictate their strategy. You're nodding away like that's yeah, normal. That,
0: that, yes, that's right. They, that, 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 that is correct. I lead a team that that uh, sets the parameters of how that money should be invested, and uh, and uh, I'm very proud of the work we do as a, a team, and and happy to say we've helped guide investors our clients through some very challenging times and have done so uh,
3: successfully it's it's interesting isn't it because I suppose most people it's normal to you and probably the world that you work in in the same way it would be normal to a prison officer who works with prisoners and understands that world you know that they're, they're, they're millions and millions of miles apart or are they that's the big question because that's where we're going but do you recognize Jeff the enormity of of your responsibility, as opposed to somebody who is a prison officer on a meagre wage, looking after very dangerous prisoners, do you recognise the difference in scale and conversation? You know,
0: I, I I'm not sure I do because we all have a role to play. And uh, I once met with someone who had been a leader in a prior firm, and and he said, on any given day, any one person in this office can be the most important person. I think that's true of just about any any role in the economy. Uh, you you never know what action you take could have some very dramatic consequences, and uh, you know I just work with money. Working with people uh, seems to me much more important. You know, obviously my my work with money helps support people's lifestyles, and and um, you know I take our our duty of people trusting their life savings with us very seriously. And do lose sleep over decisions and and all those things that you do, but you know someone who is a prison guard is in a life and death situation sometimes or could be and can also help transform someone's life. You know, you never know what small act of respect or dignity might be a turning point uh, for for someone. So I don't think of workers in some kind of hierarchy of importance. Um, we we all are important and we all uh, play different roles and at different times, and you never know the long-term consequences of our actions
3: the reason i'm talking to you today jeff is because i read something that detailed your involvement in trying to help ex-offenders ex-convicts ex-criminals whatever ex you want to term these individuals getting these people in- into work how did that come about how does somebody in your position get involved in something that that is so important
0: I, I think there are two answers. There's a, you know, a head and a heart answer. And the head answer is about uh, seven, eight years ago, a very active discussion in the U.S. was why our economy was growing so slowly, due to poor workforce growth. Too many people had been sidelined from the labor force, and economists didn't really understand why. And I started diving into it, and at the same time, I was hearing uh, problems from the companies that we bank. Uh, which are many of them are manufacturing companies, couldn't find work uh, labor to grow their business. So there's a workforce shortage, just as we have today. And at the same time, there was this economic puzzle of who was out of the workforce. And I came to the conclusion, uh, looking at the data, that it were. It was a question of social ills uh, impacting the economy, long-term unemployment, the opioid epidemic, which is quite severe uh, in the United States, and uh, the incarceration recidivism cycle. And of course, all of those things are interrelated. But I also started meeting companies that had intentionally sought out people who had been mar- marginalized, people, particularly people coming from prison or with criminal records that had been real barriers to their employment. And they had figured out how to do this, how to provide supportive employment that that uh, selected people who were ready uh, to turn their life around and be good workers, and critically also give them the tools to thrive. So that's the that's the head answer. The hard answer, uh, I do go back to my upbringing. Uh, my dad, even though he he. Uh, went well beyond his impoverished uh, youth, he never lost touch with his roots. And he would go on uh, what he called errands, but were really just excuses to visit his old neighborhood. And as a 10 or 12-year-old, I'd go with him sometimes, you know, going with your dad in the car. And and, uh, one time, uh, memorably, we stopped at, I think it was essentially a junk shop, and he introduced me to his friend who owned it and had a nice conversation. And As we walked away, he remarked, you know, he was in prison and I asked, for what? And uh, my dad said, for murder, uh, a crime of passion. And then my dad said something that has just stuck with me forever. He said, he's done his time. And uh, I think that's the value um, that that was conveyed to me that made me open to doing this economic study of why we need to get people who have been barred from the workforce or underemployed, why we need to look for strategies to get them back in. It's the right thing to do, but is also an economic. There's an economic advantage to doing this, and that's great when you can get that kind of alignment.
3: Why is it the right thing to do? Well, I, I, I'm going to go back. My as my dad said, you know,
0: you, you've paid, you've done, you've done your time. There should be consequences for bad actions that are are criminal in nature. Some of those consequences, I'm not a prison abolitionist. I think some of those consequences can justifiably include incarceration. But when your sentence is over, your sentence should be over, right? You you have done an action. There's a consequence for that action. You have fulfilled the requirements of that consequence. Why should that be held against you and become what is in many cases in the United States a lifelong sentence, Um, it's not right. And uh, we in the United States pride ourselves on being the land of opportunity, and that should be the land of opportunities for all. And uh, we are denying too many people opportunities to rebuild their lives, to contribute to the economy, to contribute to society, because of an action they took in the past for which they've already paid.
3: And what did your study discover as you looked at this? You looked at sort of pairing ex-offenders with, with businesses or with employment manufacturers. What did your study show, Jeff?
0: Well, what they showed is that this is of, number one, of enormous economic importance, just because there are so many. Um, economic growth, potential economic growth is a function of two things, and really only two things. How fast can you grow your workforce and how fast can you grow their productivity? In the United States, we have 19 million people with felony convictions and millions more with lower-level convictions, misdemeanor convictions. And all of them face some kind of barrier to to participating in the economy. And so when you have a number that large, you have to think of it as a talent pool as well. And it really could make a real difference to economic growth in the United States, uh, just just on that pure economic uh, basis. The other thing that um, I guess surprised me is that when you actually look at the models that work for bringing people back into the workforce like this, they don't produce just an adequate employee or an employee of last resort. Done right, this group is actually a more engaged and loyal employee, which means more productive and more profitable. So this is actually a pathway to superior employees when done right.
3: Why do you think that is? Why do you think the ex-offender is this more superior person to employ?
0: So, so on one level, it's um, this model of employment. you know, Find people who are really ready to work and are a good fit and give them the tools to thrive w- would work anywhere but the candidates who come out of say Harvard business school are are already picked over this is an untapped pool of, of talent so so for one you can just cherry pick you know the diamonds in the rough if you will uh, that and find those those extremely talented people who have been lo- overlooked by others but i think more profoundly this is a case of human nature and if we if uh, your listeners uh, think back as i have uh, on times in uh, one's life when we fall short of of who we want to be or who we think we should be, we make mistakes, we fall down. People of character want to go back and prove they are more than their worst moments. And this is true of this population as well. So you get people who are so eager to be more than their worst moments. And that, that ha- gives them the potential to be great. You know, I found great employees great citizens, and I've also found great friends. What
3: well, What's your thinking around trust? I suppose a lot of employers think ex-offenders, you know, they have this caricature of of a, a an ex-prisoner or an ex-offender. They think they're all untrustworthy. You, you know, you probably recognise that somebody who's committed a, a serious violent offence, like murder, goes to prison for a very long time and comes out, they're unlikely to commit another crime of the same nature. And and least of all, they're probably more trustworthy than the, the thief being your next door neighbor. But why do you think people struggle, employers struggle with trust in ex-offenders or oh, that's the image yeah. they have? Of- no,
0: and, and I think that that's um, understandable and has been shaped by our culture. And we have learned that people who, uh, you know, at, at an early age, many people learn, uh, you know, cops are good guys, criminals are bad guys. A- and that's too simplistic a formula. What all the research has shown is that you can't make broad generalizations and that the crime in many cases is the case of a young person, particularly young men, overwhelmingly young men, being in the wrong place at the wrong time with the wrong guidance in life or or lack of uh, of of guidance and that they can become more than that and they are not defined by the crime that being said i i am i probably differ from the bulk of people who are in criminal justice reform in that I do think there are bad people out there who, and I don't know why that is. Maybe it's childhood trauma. Maybe it's something else. Maybe it's uh, uh, related to addiction that people can't shake. But but for whatever reason, the key to the process that I describe and uh, tell business owners is, is the way to go starts with a selection process and finding people from this population who are people of good character. And you do that by working with partners, typically nonprofits that work with people coming out of prison or work with people in prison, and get the time to know people. Uh, and you can and can assess character and readiness uh, of, for employment. I don't expect everyone who comes out of prison to be ready uh, for employment. Uh, rough numbers, and this is, no one can prove this, but People uh, I've spoken with seem to think this is about right. A third of the people who exit prison, and there are over 600,000 who leave prisons in the United States each year, About a third are, are ready for employment. They've got some stability in life and housing and, and maybe transportation and relatives who can support them. A third can be made ready, and a third, I think, will just are, are the repeat offenders and who will never be ready. So it's critical to, to assess that. But the thing I'll also say is that there are lots of people who make lousy toxic employees who don't have a criminal record and and can be, you know, what I would think of as at least a bad colleague or or, or uh, maybe a bad person but don't have a criminal record. So so th- this is true of any population. Uh you you can be a real jerk whether you have a criminal record or not.
3: And and it and I suppose that comes down to resistance. You know, what do you find the, the, the employees are like in terms of their resistance. what are their reasons i'm not going to employ you know we have a successful international business, and the last thing we need is for somebody with an X record to come in and tarnish our reputation, et etc i don't know what what do you find is the the most common resistance so,
0: so there are three main objections one is this safety and liability right is this going to be a dangerous person who endangers our our customers or our coworkers? and with associated liability. Uh, The U.S., as you know, is a fairly litigious society, and there is such a thing as negligent hiring uh, liability. It rarely happens that someone uh, has uh, liability because they've hired someone with a criminal record uh, or that they're sued uh, for this. But um, it does influence businesses. You know, I, I always, when when criminal justice people often push back and say, "Yeah, but that hardly ever happens. Uh, you hardly ever sued." My response is, "I have fire insurance on my ho- on my home. Homes hardly ever catch on fire, but but I want protection against the, the the risk. And and that is why many employers will not consider people with criminal records. But then there's an issue also of quality. And uh, a fear that second second chance means second rate in terms of, of, of quality of work. And again, this is an issue of sometimes experience. If you hire someone, even the right person, but you don't give them the tools to succeed, they're not going to do very well. So again, you have to go back to this specific model of support that works uh, very well. And then, as you mentioned, uh, reputation risk. And I think that's changing. Um, many employees, particularly millennial generation and younger employees, want their companies to be involved in solving societal issues. And second chance employment is so important uh, towards doing that. Again, I approach it from an economic perspective because for this to work and to get the business community engaged, it has to make economic sense for businesses. Uh, you know, they'll write checks to charity, but to hire someone into your firm, it's got to make economic sense. But I also recognize that second chance employment has such positive societal outcomes uh, beyond just uh, the economy. It makes for safer communities, more stable communities. It addresses some of the racial inequalities uh, that exist in the United States. Just to give you one quick statistic, one in three black men in America has a felony conviction. So when you look at the economic outcomes there, you have to ask yourself: Is this a question of race or or, or the criminal mark on their record that's that's barring them from opportunities so we have to remove uh for those who are ready for employment and to be good employees we have to remove those barriers if we're going to make progress on some of these uh, racial uh, issues as well
3: it's interesting i suppose when you embarked on this journey of trying to understand and marry you know ex offenders the workforce economics you know social mobility etc you were obviously discovering these facts, these statistics as you went along, Jeff. What impact did that have on the work that you were doing? Did it make you more determined? Did it just kind of paint the picture that you already knew existed, but just reaffirmed it?
0: Um, no, I, I, I think it made me better at this because I didn't know what I didn't know. And particularly in writing my book. Uh, so I wrote, uh, uh, as, as your listeners may know, I wrote a book, Untapped Talent, How Second Chance Hiring Works for Your Business and the Community. And I felt that I knew the second chance employment models cold because I had studied so many employers and and I knew what I was talking about there because I had done the work myself. But I felt that employers reading the book needed a broader context. How did we get to this point? of so many people in prison, so many people with a criminal record, such bad recidivism and re-arrest uh, statistics. How did, how did we get there? And I felt very strongly that I couldn't make mistakes in this section, even though it was not my area of expertise. I didn't want to undermine the central message of this book, which is this is a path to viable employees and good, very good employees. So I, I, I probably spent more time on the chapter's that talk about the context and that are peripheral to the central uh, part of my book, because I felt so strongly I had to get those right. And um, it was an eye-opening experience. You know, I, I've, I, it's, it's like taking a course in uh, crimin- uh, getting a degree in criminology uh, in the evenings. And, and it's been a great personal growth experience as well.
3: And is it taking you in different directions in terms of the work that you do? Because you've got your day job, you know, managing 40 billion pounds worth of assets. So, you know, where do you find the time to sort of advocate on behalf of of employees and and ex-offenders?
0: Um, I, I don't have much of a social life <laughs> anymore. And, and in fact, when writing the book, uh, I, I do travel quite a bit for business. In 2019, I did the uh, 141 flight segments, so so I travel quite a bit. So I spend time on airplanes and in hotels, and um, I, unfortunately away from my family. My my boys are, are grown and off on their own, but my uh, my wife hasn't seen as much of me as as
3: either of us would like. I don't know if that's and, a good thing or a bad thing. Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> uh, yeah I'll ask my wife. And, and um, I, I ended up to get the book written. I would take vacations on my own. So so a lot of this is on my own time, but there's also an intersection. I work for a bank. Uh, we are bankers in many ways to the industrial heartland of the United States. Our customers, are, uh, the businesses we bank are experiencing a labor shortage. And while every other bank is talking to them about the labor shortage I'm actually showing them a solution and so I've been very fortunate uh, we're about a 170 year old uh, bank uh, we uh, were actually one of the first financial institutions in the United States to have a charitable foundation uh, so so there's something in the DNA uh, of this so there has been uh, some overlap, you know, I can't I have to be careful not to overdo it and 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 focus exclusively. But we have uh, the bank has sponsored speaking panels uh, on this topic for business audiences and has uh, has been very supportive of this. The book is an outside activity and some of the speaking associated with it is an outside activity. But there are some areas of overlap as well.
3: It's so fascinating. It's so interesting that you found yourself in this space. And I suppose people who come from this space, i.e. ex-offenders or people that work in the criminal justice area, need advocates like you, Jeff, because your voice is different. Like you say, you're not an abolitionist. You're not somebody who believes that every offender deserves to be given a second chance when they've done something wrong. I suppose they do to some degree. When you wrote the book, Untapped Talent... What was the divine message that you wanted to get across, not just to employees, but to anybody that reads your book? What was the underlying message? What's the takeaway?
0: I think the takeaway is that someone's worst action does not define who they are as a human being. And I think that that underpins a lot of this, because if you don't believe that, the the whole message falls down. And I thought I, 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 you had mentioned how um, ex-offenders, people with records, need someone to say this message was not, you know, who, who has not had that lived experience. I thought it was important that they hear this message as well. And one of the really interesting responses I've gotten is people who were formerly incarcerated who have, uh, A, many have become very good friends, dear friends, but have been so supportive and appreciative uh, of my work. Uh, I was fortunate, a, a a friend, a philanthropist, also in the investment industry from Philadelphia, supported a project uh, to send this book to prison libraries. And uh, in the U.S., it's actually very hard to get books in, into prison and, and prison libraries. So for one, the book was originally supposed to be a hardcover. Hardcovers aren't allowed in most prisons, because they, it's thought they can be weaponized. Uh, so I worked with my publisher, and we d- demoted the book to a paperback, so that we could get it into prisons. And we've gotten nearly 500 books into prison libraries around the around the U.S. Uh, I've been fortunate to connect with a nonprofit um, uh, that, that has uh, has done some great work in this area, uh, uh, books inside, and uh, it's going very well. And we have more 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 on the way. And the reason I did that, and, and also the very first section of the book is a note to the currently incarcerated, is that I have met so many formerly incarcerated people who told me that they when they went inside, they thought their life was over. And you know typically this is someone 18 or 19 years old, no 18 or 19 year old should feel their life is over. And I wanted people who are currently incarcerated to hear a message that says,'re not your life is not over. There's opportunities for you. Um, It's realistic, you know, in in this in this forward to the book, I said, look, you've got a tough road ahead of you because for too many people, you're defined by your worst action. Do what you can while you're behind bars to be ready, you know, further your education. If you can get hard skills with certifications, if those are offered, show that you are more than your worst mistake. Um, And I think that's a a good message to send uh, all around.
3: I think it's very powerful. I'm an advocate in that you embrace that past and you use it to further your future or to educate people. But there are advocates out there or campaigners who who have things like, you know, tick the box so that when you do fill out an application for a job, you shouldn't have to declare that you have a criminal conviction, especially if it's a minor criminal conviction. Which camp are you in? Do you believe, you know, people should embrace who they were and, and sort of advocate who they've become, or you should hide that in order to give them a chance.
0: You know, I don't have a good answer for that. I think it really, uh, um, in my ideal world, you have employers who are so educated about the system that they would understand uh, that that they would want to hear from someone how, how this has been used to rebuild their life. And, um, you know, people have been tested by fire. If, If you, if you, um, made mis- a serious mistake as a youth. You went to prison, and you've come out and you rebuilt your life. You are a very strong person. in In and it's a proof of determination and um, and inner strength in a way that's very attractive to I- employers. But there are also employers who aren't ready for that message. But th- there's there's not much hiding uh, other than expungement or sealing of records, um, and, and those tend to be for very minor issues. Uh, so it really. I think some of those issues should be secondary and the real focus should be on educating employers and and having them have the experience of interacting with people who are formerly incarcerated or have a criminal record and getting them to understand they're just fellow human beings and uh, and that will take care of some of these prejudices.
3: When you embarked on this journey, it was because you saw there was a, a, a workforce gap that people were crying out for a workforce. I don't know how many years on since you started this journey, Jeff, but have you noticed the difference in terms of employment of ex-offenders or people with criminal records? I mean, what what difference have you seen that's been made since you started?
0: The most progress was being made in 2018 and 2019. And during that period, uh, the, the number in the United States, the number of job openings exceeded the number of job, job seekers. That's definition of a hot labor market. So it got companies very involved in how do we solve for this issue? And the pandemic, of course, interrupted it. But this is a, economists hate to use the term inevitable, but uh, demographics is destiny. We stopped in the developed world, including the UK, including the United States. We stopped having enough children 20 plus years ago to replace our populations and this is so widespread that even immigration is only a partial uh, solution so the answer for the business community is how do you dive deeper into your existing population and make sure you can employ everyone who wants to work and and help them be more productive so the business community are uh, is a great problem-solving community and they've never applied themselves to these social issues i think they will continue to do so what i'm seeing and very encouraging is some leadership from really the top of corporate uh, america uh, there's uh, something called the second chance business coalition that was launched in april includes names like j p morgan procter and gamble kroger the big uh, grocery store chain and maybe third or fourth largest employer in the united states and this is more than just uh, you know a performative statement these companies have committed to actually doing pilot projects and sharing the data among them. Some, like Kroger, already have a program called New Beginnings that they started a few years ago, been very successful. Coke Industries is one that has won the long-term experience with hiring people with records. And these are uh, business leaders of such prominence, I think their success will help spread uh, the, the word. One of the things that also uh, was a really pleasant surprise with me is how many corporate leaders in America were willing to step up and help me. Uh, so uh, I have endorsements. Uh, one great, great uh, partner has been the Society of Human Resource Management, which is a global trade association of HR professionals. And they have a program called Getting Talent Back to Work, complete with a certification that they've made free to HR professionals and the, and the public and um uh, the CEO of that Johnny Taylor endorsed the book. The retired chairman of Bank of America endorsed the book uh, the chairman of uh, the CEO and chairman of Kroger uh people uh, Kelly Services is a global uh, uh, Kelly is a, a global staffing agency. Their CEO endorsed the book all on the back cover so there's a, a great desire among leaders in corporate America and I know elsewhere as well, but more familiar with the, the US situation, uh, who are willing to to help drive this, move, move this forward. And uh, we've never had the business community really get involved in solving these problems. That is starting to happen, and that is going to make all the difference.
3: It's so important. And this deep dive into this labour market when they have criminal records or are ex-offenders, does it extend to inside these prisons in America? They have millions of incarcerated. So are the manufacturers now, I mean, there's always been employment in prisons in some way, shape or form. We have it here in the UK, maybe not so much in developing worlds. But do you think that it's extending to going inside of prisons and offering prisoners real skills and training?
0: It it is. Um, There's a growth of what are called work release programs where people still spend their evenings in prisons, but but leave the prisons, get on a bus, go to a place of employment, get that experience and start that reintegration uh, process, usually uh, within a couple years of release. And, and then go back to the prisons. That's that's great. Those tend to pay, you know, sort of prevailing market wages as well. It gives uh, people a chance to start savings and, and get that cushion that's so helpful in successful reentry. Um, there's also uh, training programs that are being led by the business community. I uh, have a chapter in the book de- dedicated to a case study of a small company in Ohio called JBM Packaging, and they went from. Absolutely no interest in this. To now, about twenty percent, more than twenty percent of their workforce are uh, people who have come from prisons or halfway houses. They said started a training program inside a prison. Um, they pay a training stipend. They uh, have chosen to recycle any goods that are produced there because they don't want to be involved in prison manufacture. So it's a pure training program. Uh, they were able to work with the state authorities that govern this, this facility uh, to get one of their former workers transferred to this facility so he can be the trainer. So they have a former uh, employee and it's created a steady pipeline. This is, this is the kind of win-win that you can get when you get the business community involved and seeing be people who are in, involved in the justice system, not as you know some subhuman category, but seeing them as their future workforce and future uh, team members, that is going to create the most effective change that I can think of.
3: Have you ever been to prison? Jeff, not as a prisoner, not as somebody who's convicted. No, and- no, no, no,
0: no. And and, and never, and never. I I've had a couple of uh, uh, a, a speeding ticket about oh, six. That, that years was going to be my years.
3: next question. What criminal offences have you been arrested? For? Yeah,
0: no, no. Uh, 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 have I done things that I wish I hadn't done and, and never gotten caught? Yes, uh, and I think most of us can can say that. But no, I I, I think a speeding t- ticket. And it was like 50 in a 30 mile, mile per hour zone because I didn't see the sign. Uh, I think that's about as uh, as uh, much of a record as I have. But have you been to prison? To visit prisons? Yes, absolutely. And, and as well as jails, uh, large jails. So I was in uh, Cook County Jail, which is the Chicago County is one of the largest jails in, in, the, in the world. Um, so, yes, uh, I, I have not been to enough to, to tell you the truth. I'd, I'd like to visit more. And uh, 2020 was supposed to be the year that I was going to visit a whole lot of facilities. And of course, with the pandemic, uh, those were all shut down. But I, I, I'll get in there.
3: Just tell me what your experience was like walking in a prison for the very first time.
0: I was nervous. I didn't know it, it, what it was like. And I, but I do have to say, I am, by nature of the work I do, I'm probably not getting a representative picture. So um, one of the prisons, the first prison I visited was in Jackson, Michigan, and it has a facility, uh, one of now three in the state of Michigan, called a Vocational Village, where um, really forward-looking correctional authorities in in Michigan have set up these programs in what we think of as low-security prisons that provide true vocational training and partner with the business community. So you're already going into a place that is a... Uh, minimal security pr- uh, place, seeing a fairly forward-looking uh, program. Cook County Jail, uh, which was the most recent, was uh, is sort of used to be an infamous place, but uh, Sheriff J- Dart, who oversees uh, the jail, has been again a real leader in sh- correctional world, and uh, th- they've set up. Uh, training programs there. They really have done a great job in uh, jails are harder because they're shorter stays and uncertain turnover and things like that. But uh, they've done a very good job uh, there. So I'm not seeing necessarily representative facilities, but I'm seeing a glimpse of what all facilities could be.
3: What What's next, Jeff? I mean, what do you have plotted or planned next? Your book is excellent, and I think it, it bridges a gap that doesn't exist at the moment. You know, talking about the labor force coming from that particular space is insightful, and making that connect where that connect doesn't already exist, not in a book form like like yours, and a very well thought out and detailed book. What, what's the next plan? Is there something missing that you want to to do in this space,
0: there's been um, someone, uh, my friend Daniel Dart, who is a uh, justice reform advocate and and a formerly incarcerated, now investment person, uh, has suggested. I thought this was a great suggestion that I pair up with someone who's uh, been incarcerated, and that we create a uh, a version of the book that is shorter and really directed towards population inside prisons. And, and I thought that's a neat idea, uh, because this is a very technical book. It is not easy reading. I was amazed my 92-year-old mother read it, and, and I was very impressed that she read it. She's so
3: probably checking your spelling, rather. Right, right. <laughs> but it's
0: not, it is not, it's not easy reading, and uh, yet the message is is pretty simple. And uh, so I, I think another version of that might might be of interest. I know there's some uh, prisons in, uh, say, Rhode Island uh, that are doing some kind of programming inside based on the book, like study groups, uh, maybe some materials to support that. But I, my my interest in the labor force extend beyond this population, quite frankly. And um, th- there's, it's, it's a couple years off because I want to see how this plays out and how I can uh, support these efforts. But uh, eventually, I think that the developed Western economies have a lot to learn from Japan, and Japan has been faced with the demographic challenges that we're all starting to, to face right now, and they've come up with some interesting solutions, a guest worker program that gets around some of the cultural resistance to, to immigration, tremendous success, outpacing both the US and uh, and Europe in uh, in getting women in the workforce against huge cultural the barriers and and odds, automation, and then some interesting things of getting older workers to renegotiate their employment. Uh, so so there's a lot I think that all of the economies can learn from uh, Japan, and and I would like to uh, I'd like to tackle that down the road uh, as well. I, I I'm a believer in the dignity of fairly compensated work, and uh, and I think that that uh, that's something that we are all going to have to think a little bit more about.
3: Interesting. Finally, what does what does second chance mean to you? Is it something that somebody has to grasp for themselves? Is it something that we give to someone, we offer to someone, or is it only something that you can find within yourself to give somebody a second chance and for them to take it? What does it mean to you, Jeff?
0: I I, I that's a great question. I, I I uh don't think that everyone deserves a second chance. I do believe Everyone deserves the right to earn that second chance for themselves. So it's not just a one-sided proposition. People have to do things to make themselves better, to work on themselves, to recognize their shortcomings and, and address any wrongdoing that, that they have done and, and own that. And that's how how you earn that right to a second chance. But you still need someone willing to give it. And this is something that is deeply Personal, because although I have not had uh, an experience with the criminal justice system, my mother is as a war refugee. She's a refugee from from uh, Germany. I'm a keeper of my grandparents' uh, German passports that have the big J, the Juden stamp um, on them. And mine, you know, I, my grandparents were lucky to get out through um, England. By the way, uh, London. They lived in London. were able to um, escape. Nazi Germany pre-war, my mother was separated. You know, this long family story, my father is the son of East European immigrants. We have been offered a second chance. My my family has has thrived and has done very well and benefited from second chances given to us. And so the concept of second chance is near and dear. I think it's part of what we in the West aspire to be. Uh, places that uh, lands that people can thrive in and have opportunities, no matter their upbringing. And so I I I want that extended to as many demographic divisions as as can possibly be.
3: And I'm sure you get a lot of support doing that, Jeff. Thank you so much for sharing the work that you do, why you do the work that you do, insight into your book, uh, and your passion for giving people watching people earn that second chance. Is there anything that we've not talked about around the work that you do and what you believe in and how you try and do what you do? Here's your chance. Here's your second chance.
0: You know, if, if there are employers listening today, I think it's important that they understand that this is not a binary decision. You know, it's not, I don't do it or I'm standing at the prison gate with employment applications. I have a, a chapter and, and something I've talked about called bridging the box, which are steps that you can take to test the waters. And so that you don't have to make this big commitment up front. You can You can try it. And it starts with recognizing that there are people who have been in the workforce, gainfully employed, who might have a... Prison record or a felony conviction in the distant past, don't treat them any differently. Why would you? They're just another employee, and so it's important to start there. Visit employers who have been doing this. Visit nonprofits that can partner with you. Offer amnesty. Don't put in vendor restrictions that that won't allow people who you know paint your building or do maintenance in your building from restri- uh, from uh, hiring people with records. So the message that I would like employers to hear is. You don't have to take it on all at once. You can you can see if it's a fit for you in very gradual steps. And uh, that, I think, is an important uh, aspect.
3: And within that, you mentioned that some businesses, do they have that kind of caveat where they cannot subcontract yep. to people who have criminal convictions, etc. That sounds yes. ludicrous. Yes.
0: So I, I've spoken to it and often it is ludicrous. It's just not well thought out. And you'll find that they will restrict their vendors. So uh, uh, let me give you a, a real-life example, a hospital that I know of that will not not allow a company uh, that routinely hires people with criminal records that comes in and takes away old medical equipment. They won't lo- allow them to bring people into the hospital to do that job. So that restricts this second-chance employer who is an excellent second-chance employer who's... who's helped hundreds and hundreds of people re- rebuild their life. He is limited, this this CEO is limited in his ability to expand that program because a hospital, which ostensibly should be involved, care about community health, won't allow him to have his workers who have records inside the doors. And as the CEO shared with me, he said, who, who do they think is visiting their patients? You know, <laughs> That There are people inside that hospital every day who have felony convictions, whether they're patients or visitors to patients. And here he's got a great supportive employment model that he's not able to go further because this hospital has these restrictions. So it's actually shockingly common.
3: And, and, and what would the concern be? I'm just thinking, well, maybe it's because of the, the, the drugs that they need to dispose of or the medications, et cetera, that they think that these ex offenders or, or people with criminal records, which are two different things, um, may take the surplus and sell it or do something. I mean,
0: yeah, it, it's, it's not well thought out. It, I, I think that's the fear, or that, again, there's the ever present fear in the United States of legal liability you do something and you know, you, you're you in the purchasing department and acquisition department it's if everything goes right Aaron says well you're just doing your job but if something goes wrong you know the one time who let that vendor in who let that vendor bring ex-cons into in and so you have these uh career it's not necessarily logical from the standpoint of uh the overall picture but it may be a logical decision from the standpoint of the career of the person who's making that decision. And, uh, and and that is a very big obstacle. So that's why a lot of this has to be led from the top. And it, it, it really needs CEOs or senior executives who champion this.
3: And that leads to my final question, which is you're championing the idea that, you know, Workforce can be tapped from this space. Does the bank you work for, do you in your position, are you able to employ ex offenders or people with criminal records? I mean, are you leading from the front?
0: So, banks in the United States have regulations that limit this. So, it's a much smaller pool that we can consider. I am not privy to how many we have, but I can tell you for a fact, I helped sponsor a young man who is going to be a fabulous banker, um, hired him uh, about a year ago after three other banks had rescinded their offers. And he's just a, 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 an absolute superstar. I will tell you, uh, some banks, uh, say JP Morgan, have been really aggressive about, about this. Where we have uh, really led is in educating the business community. and And if I had to pick, that's our greatest point of
3: leverage. Educating the business community.
0: Right, right, because that's that's where we can have the most profound impact. But yes, we have hired people with uh, with records um, to the degree they satisfy our regulatory requirements. And the one in particular that I sponsored, so that's really the only one I know about for sure, because you know these things are private. Is going to be a superstar. Uh, Our uh, one of our most senior leaders. I I asked him to interview uh, this young man, and he said it's the best interview uh, for an entry level job he's had in seventeen years. And you're his mentor. Uh, you know, he doesn't he he's he doesn't need a lot of mentoring, but every now and then we do touch base and, and uh, he's just a great, uh, great young man.
3: Jeff, thank you so much for spending time with me this afternoon and sharing with me this journey that you've started and are having an impact on. Thank you so much for your time, Jeff. It's been a pleasure talking to you.
0: Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on.
3: If you own or run a business, think about what Jeff has suggested. Whatever the motive, taking on someone with a criminal record provides a real opportunity. If you've never given it a thought before, think about it now. And please don't judge the person in need of a second chance. When people who have made a mistake and paid for that error continue to suffer the penalty of workforce barriers, we create injustice. The road to a better society must be paved by the business community who can give people the opportunity to move beyond their worst moment. Thanks for listening to this episode and please share and follow us on social media. It'd be great if you could rate and review on the site where you listen to this podcast. If you want to support and advertise on this show, please get in touch. If you think I should get someone on the show, drop me a direct message via LinkedIn Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, or any other means you have to make contact. Audio editing is by Audio Avalanche. The original music is by J-Row Productions. The cover design work is by Studio Minerva. Our guest booker is Tegan Parsons. And me, your host, Raphael Rowe.